I'm Shauna Van Bogart, and this is Just Being Seen. I will never forget the time I stumbled upon a note from someone that I was in a loving relationship with, not my husband. This was an ex-boyfriend from a really long time ago. And that note basically highlighted things about me that this person found annoying. Now, it was so long ago. It was 20 years ago at this point. I can't remember if it was a journal entry of theirs. It likely was, or maybe it was a letter written to someone else. It doesn't matter. But when I saw it and I saw those things written about me, of course, I was devastated. And it wasn't mean. It wasn't gossipy. It was more like him working out his thoughts and they just happened to be about me and the annoying aspects of me. I was so crushed though to see my imperfections spelled out on that sheet in front of me. And I remember most of the things on that list being probably the same things that I would highlight that were annoying in me. So there wasn't anything particularly new on there or anything I necessarily disagreed with. At first I felt defeat Then I felt anger and then I felt blame, you know, wanting to get angry at him for having those thoughts and and to make him the bad guy. And then I wanted to find ways to control it by allowing my perfectionism to come in and either change myself or find ways to justify the imperfections that I was seeing highlighted. We have a hard enough time as humans facing our own imperfections. Scratch that, that's not true. We actually face our own imperfections every single day and we dwell on them. What I mean is we have a hard enough time managing, navigating, and showing up to our life in the ways we know are possible despite those imperfections. And when you see imperfections through the lens of another person, especially someone that you're in a loving relationship with, that hurts. I don't know if it will ever not hurt. Now, of course, I was young. This was young love. I hadn't done any of the self-work to know any better except just to toil away at making myself even more perfect. Despite on some level knowing and having the maturity to know that of course I have annoying qualities about me. Everyone has annoying qualities about them. Of course, I probably frustrate some people. Of course, I have imperfections. I wasn't yet at the stage where I had liberated myself from the illusion that I somehow had control over that. I can see a very clear pattern, especially throughout my 20s, where I let the experience that other people were having of me dictate who I was to myself. That's the shape-shifting, to be who I thought I needed to be, to be likable, But it wasn't just likable and lovable that I was seeking. I wanted to be perfect because I thought perfection was what was needed to get the things that I wanted. I didn't yet know, like know in my heart, know in my body, know in my soul that someone could both find me annoying at times and love me always. So I navigated, like most people do, most of my life early on with this one-track mind that I must be liked always by everyone. I mean, listen to that. I must be liked always. The sheer insanity of an unconscious belief like that. No wonder I found myself over-functioning. No wonder I found myself obsessing. No wonder I found myself nitpicking at things that frankly just did not matter. 
And no wonder I took that same essence of perfectionism into my self-help work, where I found myself in the same place, eradicating every single imperfection I had because I thought to be spiritual enough, abundant enough, in full Zen, highest vibration, I had to be a fully perfect, conscious human being, void of any inner flaws or triggers or wounds or shadows or any of that. This thought, I must be liked always, or a similar thought that's got the same kind of essence is, I must be a good person. I have to be a good person. Or another sister thought, I can't make mistakes. Some essence of this thought is a very, very common one that likely you are also carrying around, dictating your behavior, stifling you from your expression, and ultimately the happiness and impact. And you likely don't even know it. So what does it feel like when we've unknowingly fallen into the illusion that if we could just figure out the one way to be all the time so that we never have to experience the feeling of other people not liking us, what does it feel like? Well, it feels like holding back. It feels like fear of speaking up. It feels like gaslighting yourself. It feels like telling yourself that your desires, your beliefs, your interests are stupid or silly or not necessary, right? That your desires are great to have, but you know what? I don't necessarily need them. I'm happy. I'm content. It's okay. It can feel like overfunctioning. It can look like endless giving, shape shifting. It feels like being boxed in. And sometimes it can feel like hopelessness or defeat. For me, this idea, this belief that other people have to have an experience of me that's totally in love, ultimate likability, void of any ounce of differing beliefs or opinions about me, that belief was around for a really long time, tucked away underneath a lot of layers. If you would have told me 15 years ago that I was operating by this belief, I wouldn't have believed you because I wouldn't have felt any kind of emotional charge to it. But that's because it was tucked underneath so many other layers. It wasn't until much later in life where I discovered, oh my gosh, this is insanity and I am navigating from this deeply held belief. Because on the mental level, exclusively, I knew how crazy that sounded. I understood that people have their own perceptions that I will never have control over. Hell, I was in image consulting for a reason to empower other people to own who they were, do their best, but ultimately release the rest of what people think. Because you will never, no matter what image consulting tools are available to you, be able to control how other people think about you. I swam in this understanding constantly in my work from day one. And so because I was teaching it and because I was surrounded by these concepts so much and I was getting impact with them, I didn't think I had a problem at all. I was giving other people the permission, the liberation to let it go. But I wasn't giving the same permission to myself. When I saw those thoughts about me, an outline of my imperfections, written by somebody else, it made me feel stupid. Mainly because I was aware of how reactive and triggered I was by it, and I felt stupid for caring because I so badly wanted to be a person who didn't care what people thought, even my loved ones. 
And also because I had the maturity to know that other people do get to think however they want to think. But I felt stupid because despite knowing all of that, I was still feeling hurt. That's how deep my perfectionism ran in the sense that I thought I should be so empowered or whatever within myself that reading something like that shouldn't affect me. And it did. And it should because I'm a human being. But in that moment, after the initial waves of all of the other feelings, the landing place was, I can't believe I'm affected by this. What's wrong with me? I like to think of it because it was an ongoing theme throughout my adulthood where if something was said or I overheard something critical about me or if I was critical about myself, there was no space for any of that to just exist. It wasn't okay. And I immediately saw it as problems needing solutions, AKA I'm a problem, I need a solution or there will be serious repercussions. I like to think about if this was my daughter and she came to me and said that she had found a list that her boyfriend had made, a boyfriend that loves her and how I would treat that. And of course, my reaction as a parent would be, you know, probably pretty angry with that guy. But I also would like to think that if it truly was a journal entry that she was never meant to see and it was something that this person was working out privately, their annoyances and frustrations, asking her, well, do you ever find him annoying? Do you ever find yourself frustrated with him? And of course, her answer would be yes. Of course, my answer in that moment would be yes. And if my way, which it was actually, was to journal things out in order to process things, and that just so means that I have to journal feelings out, which don't necessarily mean they're truth, then yes, there might be some things in there that would be very hurtful if that person read them, right? So in this unfortunate incidence where I happened to see this and I wasn't supposed to, is there really any fault here for humans being humans? And is it okay to still have emotions in reaction to seeing that? Yes, both can exist, right? My point in this example is that there are two paths whenever something like this occurs. When you get into anticipatory fear about what people are going to think, or you do overhear something that hits you wrong, that hits a nerve. One pathway is to double down on your lack, to see it as problems needing fixed. The other pathway is to expand from there to recognize some kind of universal truths. That pathway is a pathway of stepping into an empowered state where you recognize we're all humans and we're all annoying, right? We all have things or imperfections. And guess what? This person's imperfection of me might be this person's favorite thing in me. So everyone's going to have their unique experience. There is an infinite number of experiences that any given person could have of you. In this instance, for me, I doubled down on problems needing to be solved. I actually doubled down on lack. The problem I created was that there are parts of me that were wrong that needed to be fixed. And right there in that moment, I created an adversarial connection to myself. And it's very clear 
through the rest of my timeline until I started going inside and paying attention to my emotions and listening to myself and accepting myself, it's very clear that I lived the bulk of my adulthood in constant adversarial connection to myself, creating problems that didn't exist. Because another human having thoughts about me is not my experience. That's their experience. It's not for me to create problems out of that unless I say so. Now, I do believe there are times we need to be called out for behavior and things that we're doing that are beyond one's perception of us because real behavioral issues or dysfunctional operating exists. Absolutely, right? I think we all have the discernment to know, hey, this is actually something that I need to work on. And you know what? I think that's just your opinion of me. The extreme opposite is taking a rigid and stubborn approach of, well, I am who I am, take it or leave it, which is kind of another form of denial in and of itself. The liberation comes not when we don't feel anything within ourselves when someone doesn't like us. You may or may not feel anything. I don't know. Some people say they've arrived at that place. I'm a sensitive person, so I don't know if I'll ever arrive at that place where someone saying something negative about me or even critical about me doesn't sting. I don't know, but it doesn't matter because I'm finally so okay with the experience of myself that I know and have the discernment of what needs my attention and what doesn't. For so long, I played into the illusion propped up by our society that if I could find the formula to my brand, to my marketing, to my presence, to the copy on my website, if I could wear the things, have the things, be the things, get my mindset in the right place that you know we're told we need to have to manifest abundance, I would finally be at peace within and about myself. I can only point this out with clients because I've experienced it myself, but when I see high-achieving women that are getting amazing results, they're hearing feedback from their customers and clients that's very validating of their work and who they are, yet they're still feeling like their results aren't there or they're stuck or they're in a cycle of not enoughness. That's a sign that they are still using outside things like their business, their relationships, their work to feel into their worthiness. That is a sign that they are outsourcing the feeling of their worthiness. Now, remember that worthiness is there always. You don't get a choice in that, my friend. It is there. So the challenge and your project is learning how to feel what exists within you. But no matter how much they achieve, no matter what life-changing testimonials they get, no matter how many DMs or messages they get from people in their audience complimenting them or telling them that their product or service has been tremendously helpful or has inspired them or has brought lightness to their life, unless they're connected to themselves, they won't feel it. Their mind registers it as, okay, I'm doing good, something's here. But they're not in the experience of themselves to connect and to integrate with it which is never going to reinforce the worthiness that is there. And because they don't feel it, because they're not connected to themselves, they'll keep achieving, they'll keep winning, they'll keep trying to elicit reactions out of other people by way of shape-shifting and on different levels. Because when you don't feel, 
you also operate by a narrative that it's not enough or you're not enough. So you keep pushing and achieving and doing for bigger reactions because you're trying to feel your worthiness through external things. At some point, I had to ask myself, Shauna, people are telling you that you've changed their lives. What more do you think you're looking for? Like, what is a bigger compliment than that? And a more truthful question, why aren't you feeling the loving experience that others are having of you and your work? Why can't you feel it? I think this is a really good place to remind us that there's a lot going on in our nervous system that might point to some answers here. The fact that we can hold on to pain, mental pain, pain of our experiences in the past, disappointment from our experiences in the past, which gets in the way from us integrating with the receiving in life, with the good things in life, with the blessings that are coming through. Our nervous system can hold on to pain long after an injury has healed. Even when there's no physical source, our brain can cause pain signals around something that technically shouldn't have any more pain. And while we're learning so much more about nervous systems and the role it plays, not only in physical pain, but mental pain and trauma, we do continue to find evidence of the amazing adaptability of the brain. There are thousands of studies out there now. Just one out of the UK that studied taxi drivers found that the longer that they had been doing their jobs, the more unusually large the part of their brain that's responsible for our senses of space and location was, the hippocampus. The study of the taxi drivers was one of the first conclusive pieces of evidence that the brain physically changes in response to the experiences that you feed it and at any stage of life. So back to the question of enoughness, what if what's preventing you from feeling it? Because again, the truth is you are enough and it's already there, you're swimming in it. What if what's preventing you from feeling it is simply because you're too fixated on a definition, a vision, a picture of what you think it should look like? And unfortunately, that story, that vision you're aiming for was created by a you who was in scarcity, pain, or lack. So it's a faulty definition to begin with because anything created from a being who is in lack will inspire actions that lead to more lack. I remember my first Mother's Day. My daughter was about six months old. My mom just happened to be visiting. We were in our new home. My husband was, of course, there. And we were sitting on the back porch of our new house, having brunch, just chatting. And my husband had just gifted me a spa gift certificate to one of my favorite places in the world, in the mountains, with a girlfriend of mine. And I was so emotional all day. And all of the emotion kind of pooled right at that moment on the back deck. And it was so intense. I felt like something's wrong with me. I was on the verge of tears from the moment I woke up and I started thinking about what's wrong with me. Why am I so triggered by this, right? Because I just was labeling everything that was intense, like a triggered reaction. You know, what does this mean? What is this? 
And I couldn't quite label it. It wasn't sadness. It really just felt incredibly, incredibly overwhelming. And so a few weeks later, I was talking to Aleka and in a session with her, she helped me realize that there wasn't anything wrong. It's that everything was right. It was joy that I was experiencing, an overabundance of joy on a level that I'm not so certain I've had before. And it just scared me because frankly, I was thirsty for it and I hadn't experienced it yet. So it was really intense having that for the first time. For a long time, I wasn't focused on the joy in my life. I was focused on the struggle. I was focused on what's wrong. I was focused on what's wrong with me. I was focused on all of the problems in my life. And while I had actually evolved out of that place, my thought habits and the definitions I was operating from and even some of the goals had not evolved. I didn't bring those systems up to speed. And so I was still chasing after the goal of joy that was created from the old me, the old me who wasn't in her joy, the old me who was in struggle and had created that definition in the first place. And so despite arriving to it, I couldn't identify it. Nothing was wrong on that Mother's Day. In fact, everything was just so right. And I wasn't in the habit of orienting to it on that level. Aleka gave me a great analogy in that conversation. She said that sometimes with joy, when we're actually experiencing it, We don't quite realize it or it can scare us or feel intense. And it's kind of like taking a first sip of water if you were walking in a hot desert. And that first sip of water can feel really, really intense, but only because you had previously been starved for it. It won't always feel that way. So you don't have to be afraid of it. In fact, the more that you let it in, the less intense it feels so that the feelings don't override that moment. And you can be in the experience of it without so much intensity. What if you've defined worthiness, which you're waiting to acquire before you really allow yourself to be out there and be seen? What if you've defined it in a way that's no longer relevant or accurate? And the only reason you don't feel your worthiness is not because it's not there or because something's wrong with you or there's some big block in the way, but because you're chasing after a definition of worthiness, a vision of worthiness. You've painted a picture, likely unconsciously, of what you think worthiness looks like. And by very nature of doing that, You've created a separation between you and it. This is really why I created Mind Over Matter in the first place. In the marketing of the program, we talk about it being all about how to meet your desires, but it's really about receiving and seeing, seeing correctly. Because so often we don't realize when we have arrived. So often we don't realize when we have everything that we've asked for or we're working from outdated definitions, or our visions for what we want were created in a place of lack. And so our desires will always be a struggle to acquire. The biggest transformations that I get the pleasure of facilitating in this program are not necessarily the tangible results ones. They happen all the time though. More money, new car, dream homes, eliminating debt. Again, these are byproducts of the most significant result, which is showing them how to see straight again 
how to see themselves, how to feel the worthiness that exists, and then watching their reality change as a byproduct of shifting their perspective and experience of themselves. So many people are walking around in this world with pain, yet they're already healed. And because all they feel is pain, not the sensation of being healed, of being whole, they continue to seek for something that can never be found because the wound has already been healed. I believe the key is mastering the ability to expand your perspective. I don't believe it's in eradicating the pain, but I do believe it's in acknowledging it and expanding beyond it to the realm of other possibilities. I have spent years focused on solving for the pain in my life. It got me to certain places, but only so far. I solved for the pain when I saw that list of imperfections my boyfriend had written down in his journal. Sure, I made improvements to myself. Were they necessary? I don't know, maybe not. But I still kept hitting the same wall because my pursuit came from a place of not enoughness. Once I accepted pain as a part of life, discomfort as a part of being connected to people, the idea of being disliked, even hated by other people, became just part of the human experience for me, just something to accept versus trying to win at these things, to master these things. I just accepted it as something that just is. And from there, I was able to immediately open up to my power of choice because in a state of acceptance, I can remember the limitless possibilities of my choosing. The power of actually allowing your emotions in and holding space for them is that you naturally expand as a result of the space holding. So the more I held space for and the more I saw myself, the more I could integrate with the empowered version of myself, the expanded version of myself, who's anchored into my wholeness and my higher perspective, where I could see the infinite possibilities. From there, it's incredibly easy to call bullshit on the ego mind who sometimes wants to ruminate on how much harder everything is for me or how it feels like a force is working against me or who in its darkest moments wants to say that no matter what I do, nothing's going to change. From the empowered state, I can talk back to it and I can tell it, sorry mind, as much as you want to believe that no matter what you do, Nothing's going to shift or it's going to take forever. It's impossible that in a field of infinite possibilities, there's an imbalance of bad ones coming your way. Like, sorry, but that's not how it works. I started calling bullshit on my perspective. I started calling bullshit on my mind's thoughts. I started calling bullshit on my not enoughness. I stopped seeking more and I started seeing more. I pushed past the illusions my mind was feeding me and I stopped playing into the illusions by merely just accepting it as an illusion and choosing with conviction to see it that way. Your not enoughness is an illusion. If I could choose to see an illusion of a rainbow emanating from my backyard, from a place of joy, acceptance, fun, playfulness, I could certainly choose to see the illusion of my not enoughness from a place of joy and acceptance as well. 
They say that ignorance is bliss, and I have questioned if there's any validity in that. I used to think so, but at this point, I'm not so sure. Because as I said in the first episode about the rainbow, what made seeing it so cool was exactly because I was in an empowered state to choose to see it that way. An artist, really, he's an author, storyteller, magician, one of the greatest sleight of hand card dealers out there. Someone who's really inspired me over the years is a man named Derek Delgadio. He put on a show in New York called In and of Itself. You can actually stream it on Hulu and I implore you to do it because I saw it twice. I had to go back for the second time. It impacted me so much and it's just amazing. Not as great as it is in person, but the Hulu movie does a really great job capturing the magic of it. He wrote a memoir called A Moral Man and in it he's talking about illusions because he was in the business of such things. And he quotes a snippet from his own private journal where he's exploring the friction that he's facing in his own industry, where he's examining why he doesn't seem to fit in with most magicians out there and why he's even having a hard time calling himself that despite doing all of those things. And he says, I'm not interested in fooling people, or at least that's why I'm so uncomfortable performing as a magician. It's not about deception, it's about the deception of truth. To know illusions is to know reality. How can we know what's true if we can't recognize what's false? He goes on to say, the magician keeps the audience focused on the illusion. Deception is the point. And what truth does deception for deception's sake reveal? That we can be deceived? That's not enough. Eventually, he lands on this definition of a magician that I think is so beautiful. He says, a magician is someone who revealed more than he concealed, someone who bridged the gap between our collective consciousness and the divine. The point is, if I wanted to simply see something cool, I'd see a rainbow. And sometimes that's all I want is something cool. But for me and people like me who are impassioned by the meaning of life, who feel a calling in their heart of service, of impact, of pouring from the expression of who they are into the world to make it a better place, just seeing cool things is not gonna be enough. And so if I wanted to feel my own sense of empowerment, to feel connected to me, of which by the way, all of my impact pours out from, I'd see the illusion of the rainbow and I'd feel the awe of it. What if you became your own magician, someone who revealed more than you concealed by continuing to go to new depths or heights of perspective within yourself, continuing to unfold the layers of who you are, to go into that inward space and cultivate an experience with yourself where you can hold loving, compassion, kindness and space for all that wants to be exposed to the light. How might that liberate you from cycling in the same problems over and over? There was a summer in the early years of moving to Charleston that I would go out to the beach and search for sand dollars every chance I could get. I knew to go at low tide because the chances were better, so I would check the tide schedules daily, and if it worked, I would get out to the beach, and I would walk with my eyes down, with my head down, getting more acclimated to spotting them the more that I hunted. 
And I would find pieces here or there, but I was never finding whole sand dollars. Jay and I were dating at the time and I would often lug him out there with me to look. And I'm having this string of bad luck. And we're out there one evening. It's about dusk. We'd been walking for about 20 minutes or so. And I see something bright white about 10 feet in front of me shining there on the sand. I walk up. It's a totally whole sand dollar, completely perfect looking. I was so excited because it had been months of searching to find this one sand dollar that was on the beach. And I figured, okay, if there's one, there's got to be more. So I doubled down on my luck. I kept forging ahead, carefully holding this one in my hand so I didn't risk breaking it. And I find another one, perfect, bright, white, shining on the beach. So now I'm like so excited. We walk for a short while after that. And I realized that, you know what? Two's good enough. Probably not going to find any more. It's getting really dark at this point. So we start walking to the car. And I also start thinking to myself as we're walking to the car and I'm looking at these two beautiful sand dollars that I found that they are unusually white. (laughs) I have been searching for sand dollars forever and they are never this bright white on the beach. They're usually like a sand color, like a dark brown color. And I said to myself, these are too perfect. And so I kind of like shrug it off or about to get in the car and I see something sticking out of the pockets of Jay's shorts. So I tap him on the side of the leg and I go, what's in your pocket? Nothing, as he quickly diverts away. And I go, no, seriously, what's in your pocket? Oh my God, are those sand dollars? (laughs) Unbeknownst to me, Jay had purchased sand dollars from the local gift market and he was sprinkling them on the beach for me to find that evening. At first, I was disappointed because I wanted to say, oh man, it wasn't real. The whole thing was a setup. It was totally fake. But then I moved on to the admiration of having a partner who was willing to sprinkle a little magic into my life. I've had so many thoughts about that experience. It will go down as one of my top five favorite moments of life. But one of the thoughts that is still so relevant is that if the end result is the same, why am I only making it count if I do it the hard way? Why am I only making it count if it washed up on the beach by itself and I was the one who was able to find it in its pureness? So what if I had someone dropping them on the beach for me to find? And then there's an opportunity to expand even further, to fully receive the fact that I didn't stifle the moment because I recognized it was all an illusion. I didn't collapse into the disappointment. It could have been so easy because I know an old version of me who would have warped right into the mindset of that disappointment. But instead, I got to experience myself as a person in awe of what just happened, of all of the beautiful little facets of that story and the meaning behind it. I didn't lose anything by not finding those sand dollars myself. In fact, I gained so much more in that moment. I got to experience the sensation of being loved, which was really the sensation of the love within me. It was just a circumstance that opened up an experience within myself to feel connected because it could only be seen with this kind of love because I'm in love with myself. It's not fully about him, despite him being the one to bring this magic into my life. Follow me here so you can take this even further for yourself. What you feel in connection to the other people is your experience of them. 
And you can't have a certain experience of another person if you're not first predisposed to it within yourself. That right there is your worthiness being reflected back to you. Brene Brown said in a lecture, our connection with other people is only as solid and deep as our connection to ourselves. In order for me to be connected to you, I have to know who I am. I have to be connected to myself. And I think what we end up doing is we desperately search for connection with people when we have no idea who we are. If I was not in a loving place with myself, the love of those moments and the awe of those circumstances would just pass me by. No one is going to liberate you from the illusion of your not enoughness. They may shake up your world, they might trigger you, or they might lovingly guide you to that place, but you cannot sit back and wait for your enoughness to be handed to you. That's not how this works. It will never be given to you from something out there someday when you hit the milestones or whatever, because that is the illusion itself. And you can't be given something you already own. You must decide to accept the fact that you're playing into an illusion of not enoughness. It's not saying your pain is not real. It's not saying that disappointment in the past or in the future doesn't happen. You're not denying the reality of certain things that have occurred or trust that's been broken in your life. You're actually accepting all of that as a declaration that you now know better as to how this all works. And you can't simultaneously be kicking yourself for not knowing better. That's like dwelling in the disappointment that the sand dollars were not really washed up on the beach and not expanding further beyond that into the moment. You know you've expanded to a place of enoughness when you feel the awe of what's just happened within you as your perspective shifts. Not shame, not I should have known better. You still need to keep seeing. That's not your landing place. Your landing place is awe. This is what it's about for me, and I hope for you too. Knowing that what you want for yourself, for your career, for your family, is a perspective shift away. But no one can see your own worthiness for you. They may reflect it back, but that doesn't mean you'll naturally accept what you see in the mirror. So you have two options. You can try to change the reflection, which is impossible, by the way, or you can start to see it differently. And in order to see it in a different way, you first have to remember that you are in fact empowered with the ability to do so. Want me to show you? Try this. Close your eyes and just take a deep breath. Give yourself a moment to just be. Don't even effort to focus your mind. Just let it do its thing. Because your mind is not all of you. You're so much bigger than that mind who likes to tell all of its stories. So just let your mind be over there doing whatever it wants to do so that all of you can just be here. You led yourself to this podcast. You don't think that's all about me, do you? 
You don't think that you just happen to have found this interesting and so you're here. You put yourself here. What you feel listening to it and being in this moment, that's your responsibility. No one else can control the experience that you're having right now, except for you. And no matter what you feel right now, maybe inspired, maybe moved, maybe bored, that's all you. That is your power. I want you to remember this before you open your eyes. Your unworthiness is always real until you find out otherwise. Right now is the time you find out otherwise. When you open your eyes in just a second, try to also remember that what you see is an experience of you. And no matter what it is that you see, that experience is valid. You don't have to force an image or a feeling. Just be who you are. Right now. Right where you're at. The fact that you feel anything as a result of what you see is all the proof you need of your worthiness. Ready? Open your eyes. What do you see?